turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3.15, which picks up the last couple of verses of the passage we were looking at last week. It goes on into the next section and really chapter 4, verse 1 of chapter 4 really reaches a conclusion before it launches into something different. So I include verse 1 of chapter 4 with this as well. Let's bow before the Lord and let us pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord God, I lift up to you the Christians who love the gospel and love your word who live in New Zealand in Christ Church in a city named after you and your church. In Christ Church, New Zealand, Lord God, I pray for the Christians who are there that they would be light and that they would be salt and that they would be your love, that they would be your hands and your feet to reach out in a community where, as we see all too often, violence and just the the evil of men has risen up again to bring great sorrow. But I pray, Lord, knowing that you have frequently throughout history reached into places of sorrow and brought light and brought hope through the gospel, I pray, Lord God, that you would do that again and that you would bring comfort where comfort is needed that you would bring peace where peace is needed, and above all, that you would bring the light of the gospel where the gospel is needed through your faithful servants who are there. We thank you that we can have this time together here today, Lord God, and we need to read and study your word and be edified and be built up. I pray for all of my brothers and sisters who are here that we would be able to listen to and receive your word, Lord God, and that we would be built up by it. I pray, Lord God, for anyone who's here who has not received Christ as their Savior, Lord. We know, Lord God, that you know when Peter preached that first sermon at Pentecost, one of the things that he said was, he quoted from the prophet and said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I pray, Lord God, that people would hear the truth of your word today, even someone listening to a recording of this, that they would hear the truth of the gospel and if they need to be saved, they would be drawn close to you by the power of your spirit and that they would call upon the name of Jesus and receive salvation, Lord God. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. Thank you for the peace of the gospel. Thank you for the love of the gospel. Help us to be living examples of that love and power and help us to be gracious humble preachers of it to others. Thank you for this time together. We pray you guide us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 15 of Philippians chapter 3 starts like this. Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise... God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. 
Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. You see the progression, I hope, from mind to walk, to stand. And the idea of stand, because in common thinking, you may think that's reversed. First you would stand and then you would walk. But the stand that he's talking about isn't standing upright, like a baby would learn to stand upright. But the stand that he's talking about is not moving. So the progression is from let's have the same mind to let's walk like this, to, therefore, let's stand fast in the Lord. Mind, walk, stand. That's why I called the sermon the walk and the stand. Because he's been talking, and I want to go over this, because this will be the first time, even in the time we've been in Philippians, that I've done this. But there is this thread that has gone through the entire epistle up until now of references to the mind And that is something that is fundamentally true of Christians. He speaks here of the, at the end of this passage, of the ultimate transformation which is coming. We talked about it a little bit last week. We don't know what we're going to be, but we know that one day we're going to be changed and we're going to be like Him because we're going to see Him as He is. We've we've gone over that, right? And... Uh, this kind of gets, we're familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which tells us that in one day we will be transformed, changed in the twinkling of an eye. So there is that final ultimate change that miraculously and wonderfully and beautifully and is the hope of every Christian is going to take place. One day we are going to become, even in our new bodies, something like what Jesus is. Hello? Hello? We're going to be something like what Jesus... This is the hope of Christianity, right? That, that, that the mire that we find ourselves sifting through day by day is temporary. And through faith in Christ, one of the great gifts of God by His grace is that one day you're not going to be like this. You're not going to be walking through this. One day we're going to be instantly changed in the twinkling of an eye and we're going to be like Him because we're going to see Him and we're going to be something like what He is. This passage makes reference to that transformation at the end. But what this passage also makes reference to is that this this transforming process, which has its finality 
in when Jesus comes is something that ought to be going on in your life now. We are not saved in order to be left the way that we were before we knew the Lord. Back in chapter 2, it spoke of working out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do for His good pleasure. In other words, sometimes the second half of that gets snatched out all by itself and gets wrongly applied because it leaves out, you know, usually when you take half of a sentence and leave the other half out, you're setting yourself up to wrongly apply things anyway. That ought to be self-evident. But but sometimes the second half of that sentence gets taken out and gets actually used to say in sort of a fatalistic kind of way that since it's true that God is working in me to will and to do for His good pleasure, then everything that I do is something that has been decreed and controlled by God. And therefore, there is no effort required on my part to change, to improve to walk according to a different rule than I did before. However, when you read that as a sentence and read that it says we were called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us to will and to do for His good pleasure, what you realize, what he's trying to say is that uh, since... God is working in you, you are to work out with fear and trembling the life that you have here now before the Lord. You're not just supposed to live naturally like the brute beasts that Jude speaks of who are going to be destroyed one day. No, you are supposed to work out your salvation. That is, it's labor, it's work, it's hard, it requires effort on our part. We pray, we depend on the strength of God, we have no strength in and of ourselves, but we are to live out our salvation with what? The ultimate of humility and respect, fear and trembling. It's a transformation process that starts when somebody believes the gospel. And it starts here. It starts in the mind. It, listen, listen, the mind of a person is something that is very precious and it is very fragile for all of us. It is very important in our dealings with one another that we respect the fact that a person's mind can be a very fragile thing and that we not mess with each other, that we not toy with each other, that we not manipulate one another, that we not lie to one another. And all of these things are things that we're called to verbatim in the New Testament because we are told by the Apostle Paul famously in Romans chapter 12 after taking of those first 11 chapters to lay out the glory of salvation by grace through faith. Therefore, what? We are to be renewed by the transforming of our minds. We are, to offer our bo- we are to offer our bodies holy and acceptable to the Lord, our reasonable service, and be renewed by the transforming of our minds. This, this transformation process that will have its finality when Jesus appears and we will be changed in an instant to something like Him. That transformation process began when you first believed and His Holy Spirit came into you. And now you are called to 
process and think and understand an entirely new set of principles and ideas and teachings and doctrines that are rooted in the good soil of God's Word. This passage starts by saying, let us... uh, So you understand all that, right? There is a transformation process that starts by you saying, you affirming, you understanding and affirming in your soul that God works in me, whatever He wants for His pleasure. And since He works in me, I need to work out my salvation, not with not with uh, effortlessness, not work out. That's, that's like an oxymoron anyway. How can you work without effort? But you're called to work out your salvation. So you're not called to work out your salvation with a flippancy. You're not called to work out your salvation with carnality and worldliness. You're not called to work out your salvation without seriousness and sober-mindedness. Instead, you are called to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For the utmost respect for the fact that it is God who works in you. And if God is working in us, we are working out what He is working in us for the purpose of that transformation. We're walking through, we are changed, we are different, we are living according to a completely different rule. We're not living according to religious laws. We're not living according to our flesh. We are walking according to the law of Christ, the law of love, and we are walking according to the power of His Spirit in us, which ought to change the life of a person. And we walk through life becoming more and more and more like Him, less and less like ourselves, not ever attaining in this life. That was last week's message, right? Not that I've already attained anything, but what does He say here? To the degree which I have already attained in verse 16, let us walk by the same mind, uh, same rule. Let us be of the same mind. So to a degree, to an extent, we are growing in this transformation from who we were into what we're going to be. And we don't know what we're going to be yet, but we do know that when we see Him, we're going to be like Him. You see how it all fits together? You see, this is the Christian life. You need to know this. You need to know this, and you need to have your life governed by all of this as a Christian. If you're in Christ, you ought not want... You, if you're in Christ, you ought not settle for simply being what you were. You ought to ascribe to the things that His Word calls us to. And you ought to be in prayer. You ought to be in His Word. You ought to be in fellowship. You ought to be filled with His Spirit. You ought to be abiding in the vine, for without Him we can do nothing. The starting point seems to be the mind. Now, just a little bit of... Because he says here in this passage, Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. What does he mean when he says, As many of us are mature, let us have this mind. Well, back in verse... uh, All the way back in verse 5 of chapter 2... If you look at that, you see what he says? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So throughout this book, what he's talking about is 
the mindset of the Lord. And the mindset of the Lord when he was here on this earth was what? It was one of great humility. You remember that description? He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient even to the point of the death, uh, death, the death of the cross. That was the mind of Christ when he was here on earth. And then as you read through, you see that this is what he's talking about. Look, just thumb through just this tiny, tiny little letter and just see this theme that Paul has developed for us because this is what he's talking about in the passage here today. All the way back in chapter 1 and verse 27. See it? Look, go look at it. Chapter 1 and verse 27. He says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. Right? So he says to them very carefully and very clearly, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And where does that start? It starts with you having one mind striving together. Then in chapter 2 and in verse 1, he says, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection of of mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Later in in verse 2, he says, being of one mind. He even says being of one accord, which has to do with being like on the same page and working together on everything, right? And uh, in verse 3, he speaks of lowliness of mind, not selfish ambition or conceit, but he's speaking of the the humble spirit and the humble mind. And then, as I said, in verse 5, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he describes the humble mindset of, of the Lord. Then he gets into that passage which I was talking about before, which he talked where he talks about us as being the bearers of the light of the gospel to the world, God working in us, us working out with fear and trembling what God is working in us because we recognize that it's God who's working in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. Then there's a little bit of an interlude where he gives some commendations to Timothy and to Epaphroditus. And then he kind of gets back on track in the beginning of chapter 3 where he told us to rejoice in the Lord, right? And we went through all that and then we come down to this passage here which starts in verse 15 and he says, Therefore, as many of us are as mature, have this mind and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. You see the thread of the theme of the mindset of the Christian, which is threaded throughout this letter. He is constantly telling them to be of one mind, to be like-minded, to have the mind of Christ. We all ought to think the same before the Lord. And it is this mindset that then leads to how we what? Walk. It starts with how we think. And then it progresses to how we walk, which is where it goes in verse 17. 
after building up all of this talk about the mind, then in verse 17 he says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so what? Uh, let's try that again. Everyone look at verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. So after building up and talking about Christ's mind, talking about the mind of the Christian, talking about all of us being like-minded, then he comes and arrives at the conclusion, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk. Because the mind of the Christian, when transformed, as described in Romans chapter 12, leads to, necessarily, must lead to, a transformation of the walk. Yes? Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. So what Paul says here is, and this is a good instruction for all of us, it, and it's twofold for everyone, because the thing about being a disciple of Christ that you have to know is that every disciple of Jesus, every child of God, every Christian is, listen carefully, to some extent, both a follower and a leader, to some extent, to some extent, every Christian is both someone who learns from the example of others and someone who sets an example for others. Every Christian is someone who listens to and learns from other Christians and by how they live, by how they speak, every thought, every word, may my life reflect the beauty of my Lord. We sang it today. Every Christian, to some extent, sets an example by how they think and talk and act and speak and love and preach for others. Every disciple of Christ is a learner and a teacher, if not in the formal sense. This is how Christianity has been for 2,000 years. This is how Christianity will be until Christ returns. This is how the gospel is propagated in the world. This is how Christianity... Listen, this is how the Lord, by the power of His own sovereign hand, sustains Christianity in this world. By saving people, raising them up, and using them to reach other people. And it goes on and on and on and on. Thus, the parables of Christ that say things like, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Though it's the smallest of all of the herbs, yet it grows into this tree that's so big and so large that even the birds of the air can make their nests in it. That's a terrible paraphrase. Well, not a terrible paraphrase. It's actually a pretty good paraphrase. But you get the idea of, of what he's talking about. That's how Christianity, that's how the kingdom of God is built. <coughs> and so every one of us needs to recognize that our life as a Christian here on work here on, the, here on earth, involves the work 
of the transformation of your mind. And as you continue to learn and learn and learn, you're setting an example for others. And when we're all gone, if the Lord hasn't returned yet, the people that we have left it for will be doing what we're doing. What are we leaving them? What are we leaving them? Do we think about others enough? Do we care about others enough that we care about what we leave behind as far as the testimony of our faith? Will people say of us, as Paul wrote in the book of Hebrews, brethren, we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, etc., and so forth, etc., and so forth. Are we part of the cloud of witnesses? Or are we just people who went to church and then just lived our lives for ourselves? Clawing and scratching and fighting and bickering and doing all the same things that we used to do before we knew the Lord with no desire to grow, no desire to be transformed, no desire to be changed, no desire to offer ourselves as a sacrifice holy and acceptable to the Lord. This is why Paul says in verse 17, join in following my example and note those who so walk. Note those who so walk. In other words, observe and notice. Notice and observe and bottle up and hold on to those who are of that mature mind. Those who have experienced that transformation and you can see it in their walks. The world is very celebrity oriented, right? Who is celebrated in the world? Athletes, actors, singers. I'm sure some of them have many good qualities worthy of emulation. But for the most part, my observation, and you can come and holler at me after the service if you want, but for the most part, in my observation... The popular culture is a cesspool, not to be learned from. But to guard your heart against its influence. But the world loves to prop people up who have no knowledge of God, no love of God, no fear for God, never talk about God, and their lives show it. I'm not condemning anyone. We need to pray for people. We need to love our enemies love everyone. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not calling for any boycotts. or I'm not, None of that. But I'm trying to point out to you is that the world, and Satan is the god of this world. Hello? Hello? Satan is the god of this world. So the god of this world props up every possible wrong example for people to follow. And here are the words of the Bible saying what? Note those Paul says, me himself, not because he's arrogant and proud, but because he can say that because he has preached the gospel. He walks in service and humility before the Lord. He's in prison. He doesn't even know if he's going to live or die, but he's still honoring the Lord with his life. So he includes himself and he says, note all of those who what? Who so walk. 
And like I said, notice the, cha- notice the progression in the text from mind to walk. It starts with the people who have the mature mind. Did it not say that in the previous verse? Let us, in verse 15, as many as are mature have this mind. He's not, listen, he's not talking when he speaks of the mind of theological brilliance, doctrinal eloquence. All those are valuable if the theology is right and the doctrine is true. But even if the theology is right and the doctrine is true, it's worthless apart from love. The Bible tells us that. And it's worthless apart from the worthy walk. When he speaks here of people being mature and having the right mindset, he's talking about having the mind of Christ, who didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, who, who was perfectly content with the fact that even though he was God, He was found in appearance as a man and suffered all the way to the point of his death, the death on the cross. That's the mind. That's the mindset of the mature. Did you know that? Were you aware of that? Well, you are now. The, the, The truly mature Christian is not the one who can tell you this or that, tell you this or that, though that is itself a good mark of maturity. You should read and study your Bible. You should be able to quote verses. I'm not denigrating that. You should understand good doctrine. You should understand good theology. There's all kinds of things in the Bible that extol the value of that. You should be able to to spot false doctrine because you're so intimately acquainted with true doctrine and of the Bible. But when Paul describes maturity here, he's describing a maturity that is not just about Bible verses and doctrines. He's talking about a maturity that is their mindset is identified easily with that of Jesus, their Lord. And there is something, there is something where the modern church lacks because we have gone the way of the world. And the modern church looks in all the wrong places. But with you as a Christian, if you're wise, What you ought to do is what Paul says here. Note people that have that humble spirit towards Christ. And you know what? Guess what? Probably they're not going to be very well-known people. They're probably going to be obscure. They're probably going to be people that most other people wouldn't give the time of day. But they're humble because they have the mind of Christ. They love the gospel because they have the mind of Christ. They're gentle, they're forgiving, they're loving, they're kind. They exhibit the fruits of God's Holy Spirit. They may not have any name, they may not have any reputation, and they don't want any name and any reputation because the only name they want to be identified with is that of Jesus and not themselves. But you can see it in how they walk. You can see in their Say it, walk. You can see in their walk that they have the mind of Christ, that they have the mind of the mature Christian. They have a mind that says love, humility, graciousness, even love and care for my enemies, even love and patience with those who are enemies of the cross, enemies of the gospel, which later in the passage Paul mentions some of them. 
because you do have to watch out for them and be warned by them. But, but, but the true Christian, the true Christian, listen, right? Hey, the true Christian who is worthy of being followed and emulated is not necessarily the loudest, the boldest. The true Christian that's worthy of being emulated, listen, listen, is the one who is most like Jesus in their character. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? The Christianity that we are to ascribe to is a Christianity wherein we believe the gospel. God begins to, as we learn and study doctrine and theology from the Bible, as we learn that, He begins to transform how we think, which then shows up in how we walk. And in our thinking and in our walk, we start to look more and more like Jesus. And what Paul says to these Philippian Christians is, note those that are like that and follow their example. In this way, Christianity is counterintuitive. In this way, Christianity is very much unlike the world, which often values all of the worst things about people, cheers them on, celebrates them, devotes time and energy to them, spends money on them. We are not called to be like this world. We are called out of this world. We are called into a kingdom. We are told in this passage, in fact, that we're not even citizens. Did you notice that? Did you notice that in describing all this, the apostle actually points out we're not even citizens of this place? You know? People argue about citizenship and immigration and everything else. And, you know, societies should have laws and societies should follow laws and, and all that. But, but really, for the Christian... We're not even citizens of this world. We, we, we live here and we ought to be respectful of all the laws and respectful of the authorities because the people on earth, the Bible says, who have authority, have their authority from God. And so, and so when you respect that, you're respecting God himself. But in reality, we're citizens of heaven. We're citizens of heaven. You know why we're citizens of heaven? Because you are a subject in a kingdom, and your king is there. Did you hear what I just said? If you're in Christ, you are a subject in his kingdom, and his throne at the moment is up there at the right hand of the Father. And my citizenship is where my king is. Amen? And so what I want to do while I am, what do you call a person who's a subject of another kingdom but is in a faraway land? What's a word for that? Someone will get it easy. What is it? It begins with an A. Alien, that's, that's one. That, that is one. That's not the one I'm thinking of. That is true. Come on, come on, come on. Someone knows it. Ambassador. And the Bible calls us exactly that. Ambassadors. We're amb- See, we're not citizens. We're ambassadors. We're ambassadors of Jesus. And while we're here, what are we to do? We're to try to find the most Christ-like, the most mature, the most sober-thinking fellow ambassadors and use them as examples for our own lives. Listen, listen, listen. So that we also grow and become examples for others. Hello, you have a place in this process. You have a responsibility. 
This is not something that's presented as optional for certain Christians. You have a responsibility to say yes and be obedient to these things. Because it's not expected that after you've been in Christ for three years, four years, five years, ten years, twenty years, you're still having no effect on anybody else. You're not bearing any fruit in your lives. It's not expected. What's expected is that when the Apostle Paul's and the Timothy's and the Epaphroditus's are gone, that someone else who they've impacted rises up in their place. And so on and so on and so on. And so when some of the godly people who are examples in this church and in every other church are gone, the ones who have learned from that example ought to rise up in their place. And it shouldn't be mutually exclusive. It should be happening all at the same time. It is a flow. It is a cycle that never breaks. It has no interruption. The growth of the kingdom of God, the growth of the kingdom of God, listen, listen, listen. The growth of the kingdom of God has no pause button. The growth of the Christian, though at times may need to rebuffer, basically runs completely uninterrupted. Was that a correct use of technology as an illustration? I, good. Okay. I hope you knew what I meant when I said that. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Anybody sow? Anybody build things? Anybody ever buy something in the store and go home and try to put it together without the instructions only to realize, I really am messing this up. And then you go to the instructions and you try to undo everything, right? You ever tried to sew something and you just uh, eyeball it and then you realize I probably should have followed the pattern, right? On a grand scale, there's like buildings, architects make drawings, and when, when, when people kind of become hacks and go off the instructions, the inspectors come around and say, what on earth is that? Uh, we're told here that part of our spiritual growth is to follow the pattern of others who are mature. And the reason you want to do that is because you see other people walking humbly before Christ and you want to be like that because you want to become like that because, listen, I'm telling you, I, listen, everyone look at me. I want you to hear this very carefully. Look at me. You are needed in the kingdom of God to be an example for other people. You, I mean you. I don't know how much time you spend studying the word. I don't know how much time you spend in the Lord, but, but God wants to use you to be light. God wants to use you to be an example to somebody else. That's how it works. That's God's design. If we say that God is sovereign, let's work within the parameters of His sovereign design. 
Christian, you ought to desire to grow. You ought to not look in all of the places where the world looks to find inspiration and entertainment and joy. You ought to do what Paul says and follow his example, which you can read about, and follow the example of those who also walk that way so that you become like them. Listen, what did they, what did they say in the book of Acts when, when the Sadducees were all offended because the gospel was being preached and they, they wanted to arrest them all and just shut the whole thing down? What, is, what does the scripture record? It says they noted that they were all untrained Galileans and what? Someone knows this. And what? That they had been with. Yeah. They followed the pattern. When the Sanhedrin and the religious elites got a dose of what was happening with the gospel being preached, they were amazed because they were all unlearned and untrained, non-theological experts, yet they were able to eloquently present Christ as Messiah and salvation. And they noted that even though they were unskilled and untrained, they had been with Jesus. They were following the pattern. Right? At one point in Christ's life, it's recorded in John chapter 6, Christ was teaching some heavy things. He had just fed thousands of people and they followed him the next day and he rebuked them and said, you're only following me because of the fish and the loaves. Don't just follow me because you get your belly filled. Don't labor for food which perishes, labor for that which doesn't perish. And he told them that this is the work of God to believe in him whom he has sent. And he's kind of constantly trying to draw them into spiritual things, out of the world, into spiritual things, out of the world. Then he goes so far as to say, my flesh is food and my blood is drink. Because he's trying to talk about how, in a, he, says, he said, my words are spirit. He wasn't talking literally. He was talking about how to feed on him meant eternal sustenance for the soul. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. I am the bread which comes down from heaven. He who eats of me will live. It goes on and on and on and on and on, trying to woo them out of their earthly thinking and into spiritual thinking. And you know what it says? They all left because it was hard. All he had left were the 12. And he said, you're going to go too. They said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Except for Judas Iscariot, the 11 of them were part of the crowd in Acts chapter 4 that the Sanhedrin said about, these are all unlearned Galileans. But, but they were with Jesus. They followed the pattern for three years. Paul says, you have us for a pattern for many walk now see here there's verse 18 is hard because we're talking first century ad here okay we're talking like i know one knows exactly but if you you time some of the references to like historical things and roman rulers and things like that the writing of philippians is placed somewhere probably two to three decades removed from when jesus died on the cross all right, so early. We're talking about Christianity is really, really new. There's When Paul says here in verse 18, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. Paul already has weeping over the church. The ch church isn't even 
Church is only a few years old, and Paul's already got trouble, and he's weeping over it. Makes me not feel so bad sometimes. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross. See, just like there are good examples, there are also bad examples. And who are these bad examples? Well, first of all, you need to know their end is destruction. Right from the beginning, there have been people within the church. He's not talking about the world here. He's talking about follow the truth within the church already. I mean, he, he, he said earlier in this letter already, uh, beware of dogs. Remember that? Because within the church, there were already people who were bringing false doctrines, telling people that they needed to be circumcised and they needed to basically convert to Judaism and leave and live according to the law and telling Gentiles believing the gospel was not enough. Paul said, beware of dogs, beware of the mutilation. You remember all that, right? So already within the church, there was corruption. And here's another example of it. For many walk, notice he's still talking about the walk. He says, use those who walk according to the mind of Christ as an example, because there are many who walk corruptly. There are many who walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Description. Whose end is destruction. Interesting how the first thing he says is ultimately where they're going. So without even giving any descriptive qualifiers at all, the first thing you need to know is that God is going to destroy such in the end. In other words, they can say saved, they can say praise the Lord, they can say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this, haven't we done that, all they want. But their end is destruction. Why? Because of their walk. Hello? See it? How do you know? Because of their corrupt walk. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross, whose ends is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Three ways that they're described. Their God is their belly, is number one. They glory, their glory is in their shame, is number two. And three, and notice the reference to the mind. Even for the false ones, it starts in their mind. They set their mind on earthly things, which implies that we shouldn't set our mind on earthly things, which Paul told the Colossians, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, right? Whose God is their belly. The idea there is that what they really worship, they can say God and Jesus and God and Jesus all they want, but you know by their lifestyle what, that what they worship is their self-consumption. Everything. The, the newer translations use the word appetite. Their God is their appetite for carnal things, fleshly things, all sorts of things. Right? And if you look in their lives, what you can see is they say God, 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 Jesus, 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 but their lives are all about their possessions, all about money, all about their comfort, all about their status. They're indistinguishable in their desires for the world. Their God is, it's, and it's illustrated by the most basic of human functions, which is eating food, which is something that everybody needs to do. Some of us do it too much. Some of us don't do it right. But listen. Listen, but that's illustrative of the entire lifestyle of these false people who say Jesus, 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 but their whole lives is just about going through their lives and just getting whatever they want for themselves. 
They don't have the mind of Christ. They have the mind of the world. Whose glory is in their shame. You know, it's a little, to glory means to brag about something or to boast about something. To glory in something means to hold it up for everyone else to see. To glory in it means to show it to be glorious. What do these people glorify? They glorify things that are shameful. This is one of the ways that Christians change. We don't laugh and smile and wink, wink and celebrate things that are rotten and wicked and sinful. The false convert does that. They claim Christ. But the things that they hold up and say, oh, wonderful, yeah, and even spread and show to everyone else are actually rotten and wicked. Why do we allow ourselves? Why do we allow ourselves to be not just entertained? I think to some extent, recognizing the artistry of someone, the talent of someone, even if they're not in Christ, it's fine. Recognizing the talent of an athlete, rooting for your local high school or college professional sports team, fine. Right? It's not, not, it's not a legalistic thing. But, but the idea is, why in the world do we assign the loyalties of our hearts to people and situations where things that are rotten and evil and wicked are glorified. We're called to come out of it. We're called out of it. We're called to make our examples those who are like Jesus. Their God is their belly. Their glory is in their shame. Who set their mind on earthly things. So you see, once again, it's about You see the walk in the mind. You see the progression there? Just like there was a good progression from the mind to the walk, here among the wicked, there is the same progression. Verse 18 says, for many walk, and the end of it is, they set their mind on earthly things. You see the connection? Do you see the connection between the mind and the walk? It's there among the wicked. It's there among the godly. Why? Ought we to note those who have the mind of Christ and live and walk as Jesus does? Because those people recognize something. Those people recognize something that you and I ought to recognize. And that is that, as I said before, our citizenship is not even here. They don't have the mind of the world. They have the mind of Christ They don't set their mind. Their God is not their belly. Their their glory is not in their shame. They love Jesus. And Jesus has begun to transform them by the renewing of their minds and you can see it in their walk. We set those people up as our examples to follow because they understand that their citizenship is somewhere else. They understand that their citizenship is in heaven. And look, at, look how heaven's described. What do you know about heaven? I'm really only told one thing here that I need to know. For our citizenship is in heaven. What's it look like? I don't know. What's it going to be like? I don't know. I know this. My Lord is there. And He's coming back from there to here. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
All creation groans. Those who love Him groan. Those who love Him love His glorious appearing. Those who love Him long for His return. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. Not just wait for the Savior, but eagerly wait for the Savior. We eagerly wait for the Savior who already came and made the sacrifice for our sins. So He is our Savior now, but we're waiting for Him to come back and fulfill that which He began when He came the first time. We wait for our Lord to return. The Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who when He comes back, He's going to finish the job which has begun by the transformation of our minds and our walks. Our minds have been transformed by being renewed through the knowledge of Him. It has shown up in how we walk, but I haven't attained anything yet. I haven't attained even a scratch of the surface of it yet. But when heaven gives up the Messiah who comes back down the second time and and He comes back and those of us who happen to be alive and remain, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who which are alive and remain, we're going to be snatched out of all of this and He's going to transform this lowly, body which yes is given to me as a vessel and i'm supposed to maintain in sanctification and holiness and honor but as much as i try to do that it is corrupt it is destined for sickness and death and all sorts of mayhem and trouble but nevertheless he is going to transform that lowly body that it may be conformed into his his glorious body christ who rose from the dead with a brand new glorious body that suffers no corruption. No, you will not leave my soul in Hades. Neither will your Holy One see corruption. And Christ conquered death and rose from the dead with a brand new glorious body that ascended into heaven. At one point after ascending into heaven, he appeared to the apostle John and he was flaming white and he had a flame of fire and his hair was as white as wool and a sword went out of his mouth, which is the word of God. And John fell at his feet as a dead man, it says in the beginning of the book of Revelation, right? That's our glorified Lord. It says here, look at, read it, read it. He will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. In other words, he's able. He's able. That which the world could never possibly pull off, but because everything, every element of the world, every force, every power, every natural property, even supernatural things that we can't see, all of it is subject to him. And so for us, that which we cannot comprehend, that, we, that which we could never scientifically explain, Jesus will come back and in one little twinkling of an eye, change our corruption into something inc- uncorruptible for all eternity. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, man. That's coming. That's coming for the Christian. And what do you do now? You look at those who love Jesus pattern yourself after them that you might become someone who some other person can look at and pattern themselves after you and then not that we attain anything here but then one day he's going to come back and he's going to change us that's the hope of the christian that's the hope of the christian that's the joy of the christian that's the goal of the christian that's the yearning of the christian that's what we're about Therefore, verse 4, no, verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved, he calls them beloved twice. 
twice in one sentence. He starts the sentence by calling them as beloved and ends the sentence by calling them beloved. Oh, so this is really important. You see, notice things like that. It's really important. Therefore, my beloved and longed for... Love, beloved and longed for. Oh, Paul had his focus right, man. He was in prison. He, but he, Paul is in Caesar's own prison. And he wasn't like, whoa, this is the palace of the most powerful man on earth. It's like going to the White House or pick any famous seat of power on the earth. Buckingham Palace. Whatever. It's like going there and Paul's there. And he's not like, wow, Caesar. No, he's like, my beloved and longed for brethren. Man, to have a life that is so detached with all of the nonsense that doesn't matter. To have a life and a mind that is so connected with spiritual realities. My beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and my crown. His brethren were his joy and his reward. That's the idea of crown. His reward was the fellowship of these brethren. So stand fast in the Lord. Started with the transformation of the mind, moves through your life to the walk. And as the walk grows, it becomes a stand. We don't move from our faith. We don't move from our commitment to the gospel. We don't move from our commitment to Jesus. We don't move from our love for one another. We don't move from our position of eagerly waiting for Jesus to return. We stand fast. Pause. And then he, then he says, in case you didn't get it the first time, beloved. <laughs> oh, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Right? Starts with the transformation of the mind. Set your heart at the right kind of examples for your life. Pray for God's strength to become that kind of spiritual example for others. Grow in grace and stand fast in the Lord and eagerly look for His return when we will be changed into something like what He is. Stand up. Let's sing the last hymn.